0: Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Happy Rock. With Tamsin and Dan, read the paper on uh, Tuesday morning. <laughs> December 13th. Right. Yeah. Uh, so we've been busy. Yes. Well, That's our there?
1: excuse. Okay, we're on time. We're on time.
0: Yeah. We're on time. I, and I I will throw in um, belated happy birthday to Armand. Oh, okay. oh yes. Yeah, sure. Right? Yeah. Uh, December 12th. Mm-hmm. And it was a big one for him. Uh, I'm not saying which one. Good.
1: It's a big one. Thirty years old. Yeah, thirty. Mm-hmm.
0: Again, and I—I um, just I say it's funny that uh, I think about Armand as like the predecessor to our podcast. We used to go to Diana's where he was the bartender.
1: Yeah.
0: Every Friday. Yeah. And you know, talk about All things. Stuff. Yeah. And so this is—we're uh, still sort of you and I are getting together once a week. To talk about uh, things we find interesting. Um, So, and that's because we have no Armand. Beyonce is
1: gone. And uh, um, we've been pushed into show business. Yeah,
0: we've we've had
1: to just uh, throw this on the public now. Okay. All right. Well, that's interesting. I never thought of it that way. um, Okay. So, we've been busy in Gork because we went to the theater. How do you like that? We went to Finally. S- finally. I think we, we put
0: out our tale of woe that we were supposed to go last Sunday yeah. to A Man of No Importance in New
1: York City, and it was canceled due to COVID. COVID. Oh. And uh, so here's the intrigue about this. Uh, the uh, name draw for A Man of No Importance to the classic stage company is Jim Parsons, uh, who was the star of The Big Bang Theory. and uh, He was starring in this production. In this he production. is starring in this production. Right. And he got... He got very good reviews he got very good reviews um and he was on all the tv shows promoting it he was yeah. on tonight's show and you know this is big time for classic stage that jimmy fallon morning shows classic yeah. stage production but he got COVID, so they had to cancel some performances and then they were staging them with an understudy full named benjamin house and the question was even though we uh, had tickets initially canceled we going to try to go when Tim uh, Parsons was back, or would we just go, notwithstanding that the understudy was performing a part? And uh, well, we had lured
0: Dixon into going with Dixon us by Cuff saying, Parsons, you know, yeah, Dixon
1: is you know knows popular culture, uh, so he watches makes, television. He it. watches television. Exactly. So we so, tried to, to work it out to see Tim Parsons for that reason, but we couldn't." No, so all, we should, all of
0: us have the kind of complicated
1: we're very, schedules. So what the heck we said. You know, usually the other study very good. We'll go to see it. We went to see it uh, Sunday afternoon. Uh, and uh, I'll just throw it out there. So what did you think?
0: It was terrific.
1: Yeah, it was absolutely. shockingly good.
0: And uh, we all discussed it many times. And we're, we're guessing that we probably liked Benjamin Howes as the lead more than we would have liked Jim Parsons.
1: He was better suited, we thought. The uh, I mean we're just guessing okay it, it's a story of this fellow who's uh, uh, is in Dublin uh, he's a conductor on a bus he's friends with the fellow who's the driver he's just very agreeable people like him a great deal he's very appealing uh, and one of the things he does is he leads the locals in uh, in productions. The actual productions every once in a while. There's a little so, theater group. Right. And he runs out of a, a church basement. And, and the idea of, you know, the scenes with the little theater group and, and the people in town putting on amateur productions, all audiences, really resonates in the classic stage theater because you're there in this very 200-person theater. it And it's very immediate. You're sitting very close to these people and you almost feel like you're in that little theater group, you know? So it really works. And this fellow... Uh, discovers a lot about himself, including his sexuality as it goes on uh, and how he's going to, you know, how it's going to affect his relationship or not with, with the townspeople, with who he spent his uh, time. And it's very appealing. It's a musical that's um, written uh, by the uh, couple uh, that did uh, Red Time. And I was looking up the history, so that would be, here we go, Lynn Aarons. Uh, yeah, Steve Flaherty and Lynn Aarons, the book by Terence McNally. It's uh, based on a 1994 film with Albert Finney, and they decided to make it do a musical. And the musical initially was in Lincoln Center in 2002. Mm-hmm. Which I didn't realize, 20 years ago. And it had an unbelievable cast, which I didn't realize. But Lincoln Center, you get that kind of cast. So they had um, uh, Faith Prince, was in it? She played the young girl. How do you like that? The young girl? Yeah. Okay. It was Faith Prince. Jessica Malavsky, you remember uh played uh one of the townspeople. Um Roger Reese uh played Alfie Byrne. Uh and uh Stephen Pascal played Robbie Fay. Oh the, the, the button yeah
0: yeah. So Well uh, it's really about relationships yeah. uh more than anything. And there are all there are all kinds of relationships in this, not just sexual yeah. It, it, it resonates on many levels. We had a great time. We thought and it was great. The music was great. Uh, the uh, all the performances were great, really. And uh, had it? We, we had we had a great day. We had um, driven out. It was an awful, awful day. Yeah, it was Weather-wise. rainy. Weather-wise, yeah. yeah, and gloomy and windy and cold. Uh, but uh, we fought our way from the car. Over to the theater and then had this great show and then went from the theater and to a nice little Lebanese yeah. restaurant and had a great meal. So it was
1: a, a great adventure. As another reminder, there's no substitute for the small theater. I mean, I, I we were d- debating later, even though we liked it a great deal, would it work on Broadway and those kind of discussions or business discussions as much as anything else. But, you know, to be in that intimate theater, in a show about, uh, people working on an intimate theater, it was, uh, it was really great.
0: Yeah, yeah, and once again, in person,
1: yeah,
0: regardless of big or little, yeah, uh, is just an entirely different experience, yeah, than uh, anything else you do, and it's you know it's just always interesting to be in New York, especially in the holiday
1: All season done, yeah. with
0: the decor, and there's a certain liveliness in people's well, step. It seems. Well, we were
1: in prison the day before. It's jammed. Yeah, like it hasn't been jammed for a long time. I think around the holidays, I feel it's like. Jammed. I yeah I you know I'm not an expert at uh, shopping yeah
0: but it feels busier, uh than before I think you know I like to pretend to myself that people are rediscovering the joys of in-person shopping. You see things, feels you way. see yeah. people. You have little you know small talk yeah. with clerks sure. or you know other shoppers. Um, it's just it's kind of. Different from the going down the rabbit hole of millions of Amazon offerings right. in the privacy and you
1: can't, of your lounge chair.
0: So uh, there you go. Um, so that was a great outing. Yeah. a man of no importance. And, it's only playing for another. Uh, yeah, so two you days. can't see that now. I, I'll tell you something else. We're not going to see what's that?
1: Merely, we roll along. Oh, you can't. That's crazy. But you can't get in. Yeah. I mean, it, it literally opened today, I believe yeah and it's at the New York theater workshop, which is also a one hundred ninety c theater that's for union rules It's way it two hundred and uh you can't get it to it's sold out the whole thing's sold out before it It's a play that we love yes. and uh it's
0: got fun people in it um we've seen it twice I know but uh I feel like I could see it a zillion times. if it's a good production yeah um, well, it's supposed to be a know, very good production. And, it, and it's got some songs that just really tug at your heartstrings. Yeah. Not a day goes by. Yeah. You know, old friends, right. uh, things like that. So, uh,
1: um, I mean, that's too bad. Well, too bad you can't get it. And you you really, it's amazing. Good for it's, them and,
0: that they're selling out like well, that. It's a very, uh, it's a five-week engagement.
1: It's <laughs> some fairly big names, and it's a small theater. It's the, you know, the classic combination. And, yeah, maybe they'll extend, and we'll jump on it. Be talking about it weeks from now you know I, I bet they do we shall see so um the world cup's been going on we're aware of that it's not like we're not citizens of the world you know when i was talking to my brother yesterday talking to michael he said, boy the world cup that must be dominating your conversation there i said what do you mean he said the us is out he said no 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 what does that have to do with it he said out in miami all people talk about it the world cup. it's got nothing to do with the U.S. sport that's the thing i said well very different here one thing we are aware of, though, is uh, the controversy about uh, Budweiser not being able to sell beer in the stadiums uh, where they're playing the World And Budweiser, you know, promoted this and had a big contract. and And people said, "Well, that's interesting that they're managing that because the people in uh, Qatar are kind of like don't feel so great about alcoholic beverages." interesting in you know, allowing Budweiser to do it. I
0: love the way you said that. Don't feel so great about alcohol <laughs> beverages. Well, what am they're
1: I prohibited, say? Dan. Oh, they're not prohibited everywhere. No, that's not true. Uh, they do sell alcohol beverages in a good part. So it's kind of difficult to describe, but they apparently had given them a pass. And then two days before the World Cup started, they said, oh, no, we're not giving you a pass. We're banning. And basically Budweiser got screwed. And nobody feels bad for Budweiser. They're a big company. They'll manage it. But uh, the article in the Times is that Budweiser has pivoted to Bud Zero. So they're, all the places that are going to sell Bud in the stadium, they're selling Bud Zero, which is non-alcoholic Budweiser. So you asked, I know you have an interest in this, non-alcoholic beer, anyway. how's it doing? And it, according to this article, uh, poorly. Uh, the, <laughs> the fans, the soccer fans, uh, well, first of all, when 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 Qatar announced he couldn't sell Buds in the stadium, apparently the company tweeted, well, this is awkward. <laughs> <laughs> and then they withdrew the tweet because they didn't want to offend anybody. So how pathetic is that? But in any event, so they pivoted to Budweiser Zero, even though they had all these cans of Budweiser in Qatar ready to sell them. And according to the article, the average fan is uh, not excited about it. So sitting in the stadium, you're interviewing people, and they ask somebody, would you like to try Bud Zero? And the answer was, why? Uh, apparently, uh the um the appeal of beverage has something to do with alcohol. Uh Budweiser had rolled really these signs up. <laughs> Budweiser was proud to serve its products in compliance with the local rules and regulations. And everybody said proud is one way of putting it, because they were pissed at what they were. But no one's going jumping on the Bud Zero. And it was, it's not working. That was just a failure in marketing. How so? Because, first of all, I
0: mean, uh, Bud Zero, that's just a stupid name to begin with. Yeah. Because they're just uh, kind of rubbing in the idea that there's no alcohol. Yeah. You know, and it's no reason to drink it, I guess. Um, So, you know, they they could have presented it a lot of different ways, you know, uh, and I, I think sold it and they could have set up uh non alcoholic uh sort of bars and cafes and offered other things. Um not necessarily maybe Anheuser Busch or whoever uh owned the um what do you call it, the uh, rights to do it. Yeah. Whoever paid to do it. Yeah. Um the somebody part. the franchise, whatever. So, somebody could have uh put together uh a, you know, an uh, an engaging Kind of menu, maybe, maybe. Of, of those kinds of things, those offerings uh, you know i'm I'm very interested in this stuff, and I think uh it's possible people get too you know it's just uh you know uh, a mental sort of prejudice that it's only going to be good if it has alcohol in it uh, maybe that's not true because you you do have places
1: where these things are thriving, yeah, well. Look, it's 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 a little bit of a contract. You could joke about it, but uh and again, this article, you know, they're interviewing fans sitting in the soccer stadium, they may be the hardest seller of all. Right. And they're saying things like, you know, I think water's more refreshing if, if that gives me the same alcohol content, I'll drink water. So that they're having trouble selling it. Yeah. Well I think there are ways to to sell it. I think they didn't, just didn't Well, the mystery they weren't very clever. The mystery remains why they waited so long? Why the government uh, waited so long to prohibition? And the theory now is they did it had very little to do with Budweiser. I mean, uh, it had to do with the fact that they thought fewer people would come to the World Cup right. Right, if they were told yeah. that there would be no beer in the right. stadiums. Yeah, I didn't. I hadn't heard of that, but that makes some sense. No, me. I hadn't heard it. That's what I assumed. Oh well, it
0: because it's a whole thing. Yeah, but uh, you know, I feel like uh, maybe not. And Hazard Bush missed the boat so much, but other companies that are trying to promote these non-alcoholic drinks yeah. miss an opportunity to say, "But hey, yeah. you know, we have
1: this." It's, yeah,
0: it's just a, um, yeah, maybe. So, but uh, you know, maybe it is a time thing. Well, Bud's newest promotion turn around quick
1: enough. Weiser's newest promotion at guitar, in Qatar is to announce that the winning team in the World Cup will have a quote celebration on us. And the implication is that they will get all the Budweiser, Budweiser brought that they couldn't sell. Uh, so, if, for example, um, Morocco wins. They will, quote, bring home the Bud. How <laughs> do you like that idea?
0: But, you know, we, you know we're we drinking non-alcoholic
1: beer. beer. We are, but, you
0: know. We're drinking the alcoholic beer, but we're drinking non-alcoholic beer, too. I'm not a juice person. I don't like sweet well, but, but So once in a while, wow. I don't need the alcohol. Yeah. It, it turns out the Stella... The non-alcoholic cell is quite good.
1: It is. And the the non-alcoholic Guinness is good. But the profile of the uh, World Cup uh, soccer fan is one that would be a hard sell on the non-alcoholic. I mean, I think that's fair. We're not that. okay. When you're sitting there, um, it it goes with the event.
0: I think, uh, you know, what you need is to get that guy from uh, Mad Men in there.
1: What was his name? Yeah. The leading man. Yes. Yeah, yeah, he would be great. Yeah, look, he could have sold. He could have He sold. would have found, Listen, found a way. When I go to a hockey game, I want a beer. And well, What can I tell
0: you? No, I totally get that. Yeah. But also, I totally respect, you know, a lot of, it seems like, on the television at least, that uh, many soccer games uh, resulted huge drunken brawls. That's right. So I can understand wanting to avoid that, right. you know, and not promote that.
1: Okay. Well, <laughs> right. It's, it's but Dan Draper, would
0: have Aside from any yeah. kind of... Uh, yeah. Anything else? Yeah. You're in a situation, uh, business proposition. Somebody missed the boat. Yeah, I okay. think somebody could have sold something there. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, um, great restaurant review. Yeah, uh, last week in the New York Times, still unflashy, and the faithful are relieved uh, with a new owner, a renamed sandwich shop keeps its spirit. So this is about uh, S&P lunch. Mm-hmm. Which is uh, in the site of Eisensberg Sandwich Shop uh, across from the Flatiron Building, yeah. and guess what? Somebody bought it and they named it S and and it's not all cute and glitzy with an updated menu. Yeah. Okay, it's still a good old
1: New York, you know, deli lunching well, it, 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 place. It, it, it's, it's more like a, a dream of a deli lunching place. I don't, I, you know, when I read. It, that review, it seems better than what I've ever seen in a belly button. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. That's that's true. Pastrami sandwich. I mean, it's not just pastrami. It's really
1: interesting. Meatloaf
0: sandwich. Chopped liver.
1: Yeah. An iceberg lettuce. If you've got a chopped liver and iceberg lettuce thing at a luncheonette, then you're you're really something. I mean, that is not. The decor is as, you know, lackluster
0: as it's ever been, apparently. And Pete Wells, the critic. I mean, embraces right. all this, right. you know. He doesn't say this is, you know, the pinnacle of food He well, says he has, you got to pick your spots. It's like any place like that. You go one to one store or something doesn't. It? I
1: yeah. like he it a lot of stores, but you know, no, because
0: it, it doesn't have it, it has has a, it has a particular atmosphere which is not especially
1: elegant or
0: right. fine but or it's, adorable. It's like
1: the automat. we talked about the automat a few weeks ago. But the food this the food sounds really appealing. That that that's what it really made it. Us, us. What do you mean? Us? It appeals to us, it appeals to everybody.
0: Yeah, that's
1: right. the way I see it. Right. No, it's not, on ice it's not, like not like
0: the Borst belt, you know. Oh no, no.
1: The
0: faux like a yeah, the uh faux place that's uh across the river from us here. It's you know, it's everything is uh, way too cute yeah. and nine times the normal price. Right. You know, an eggs <laughs> a breakfast sandwich is twenty dollars, I think. Something like that. But this is legit. Yeah. And uh so I enjoyed that review. You dream of lucking into places like that. But
1: we don't go to that part of town is the problem. I don't know if we're ever going to get there. We will now, baby. All right. All right. If you say so. There are right. reasons to be in that part of town. All right. If you think so. So there is an article. With, you know, I always need... A I don't to say this. I'm not
0: driving to New York Yeah. to have... A meatloaf sandwich, sliced right? egg sandwich. Right. You're not doing that, right? No, but I'm just saying it's nice to know, to some extent, that dream still
1: exists. It's, it's still, still, there. still there. you're right. right. You're right. So here's a headline: says distiller says dog chew toy hurts brand. Now this is a dispute involving Jack Daniels and uh, who has their uh, celebrated bottle. Yeah, everyone recognizes the bottle of Jack Daniels and a bottle, which is made out of some kind of a rubber-like substance, uh, which looks like a Jack um, Daniels bottle, but it's a chew toy for a dog, and it's called the Bad Spaniel's Silly Squeaker Toy. I'm showing it to you, and they look very much a lot. Right. And the question is... Uh, so it's a, it's is a the, funny joke. It's a, yeah. It's the chew toy, which, you know, apparently dogs but go Jack for Jack Daniels bourbon whiskey. Yeah. Is, chew this, toy. is this a violation of Jack Daniels' trademark? And I wouldn't mention it, except uh Supreme Court's going to decide that question. You know, when you say what goes to the Supreme Court, this goes to the Supreme Court. The stiller says dog, chew, mm. toy, hurts Hertz, Hertz brand. brand.
0: Yeah. Hurts brand, in the sense, of is uh, taking profits taking
1: profits from them. No. Yes. No. That's no. not what they're saying. Yeah. No. Well, I guess they, well- they...
0: All they want is this: these chew toy people to give them... Uh, a piece of the action is that what they want? I mean, I, I, I would say no, I not don't what care what's in the lawsuit. I think that's what they really that's not want. What they want. They really they think they, people they are going to buy. They're going to buy less uh, Jack Daniels because they've seen dogs they, chewing well, it. Well,
1: let me give you their theory. Okay, their theory is that it, it denigrates the brand. That the Jack Daniels brand is going to be lessened in feel, lessened in value, the goodwill associated with it. That's, that's the lawsuit. That's, that's the lawsuit. You think <laughs> <laughs> that's not really it? I could just see the marketing
0: department at Jack Daniels now saying, "Saying, wow, this is going to be you know a quarter of a page in the New York Times when they exactly. put this So in.
1: cynical. No, I'm not cynical. It's I'm the powerful. Supreme Court. They're at the Supreme. First of all, it's amazing the Supreme Court takes the case. Of all the stuff the Supreme Court decides, they're going to figure this one out. They don't have to take and, the case. And and the they're, is, they're knocking back the Jack Daniels right
0: now, saying we have. It, a gold mine. This is great. Everybody's
1: talking about Jack Daniels. Everybody's talking about Well, no, I don't Chitoy. know. Yeah, yeah. anyway, no. here's why it's. Everybody's happy it here.
0: They've it's made it. Win, win.
1: They've made it into a First Amendment issue. The, 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 the people who. The well, people are happy but, too. The two-toy people, of course, they're thrilled. They say it's their First Amendment rights are being violated. Uh, if in fact there's an injunction against yes, their selling. Uh, and the First Amendment uh, value comes in. They say, look, it's a joke. But, you know, we're entitled to make a joke and make a comment or something like this, and the First Amendment protects this. We shouldn't be banned, uh, notwithstanding that our label just looks like Daniel's label. And that's what you do in these kind of cases. There, there are other examples, and this goes back to the w Dallas case. Uh, the same idea, you know, Debutas Dallas, people made that movie when we sued them on like, behalf of Dallas Cowboy Cheerleaders They said it's First Amendment protected. It's commentary on the way things are done or whatever. Uh, And the question is, can you rely on the First Amendment uh, in defending a case based on trademark? And it's a fairly serious discussion.
0: How does this denigrate the brand? I
1: don't think the dogs are
0: looking at each other after they chew it and say this
1: stuff tastes terrible. They say it because it's associated with their dog poo jokes on, on a chew toy. And they say we don't want to associate Jack Daniels with, you know, better humor type thing. That's that's what You didn't what tell this. me about the poo jokes. They're a poo joke. Why why do you need even those on the on I, the thing? They are. They are. And and uh, you know, it's uh it, 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 in many ways it's kind of a silly dispute, but it comes up more often. Look, here here's here's what it really Money is Money in the bank, baby. Here's the way I would do it in terms of how I was handling the lawsuit. It's really there's a doctrine called anti dilution. So basically, trademark law protects the notion of uh, preventing palming off. In other words, you can't say, you know, that's a Louis Vuitton bag. I made a bag that looks just like it. My my bag, too, is a Louis Vuitton bag. Or you sell it on the street pretending it's a luxury bag when it's really not. That's violating trademark. That's the standard classic thing. And then the question is, what if you use the trademark in an item that's clearly not the original item? So if you open up the Coca-Cola dry cleaner. You're not fooling anybody. No right. one thinks Coca-Cola is in the dry cleaning business. So Was that a violation? And uh, there was a question for years, and they came up with something called an anti-dilution law, which says that you're still not allowed to do that as the dry cleaner because it lessens the value of the Coca-Cola trademark because it's being used in, in a way that's commonplace place, that has no meaning. And the, the Coca-Cola trademark itself, when attached to Cola, will mean less. That's the theory. And that, to me, is the theory here, too. That you're kind of lessening the value of the Jack Daniels brand, but, you know, you're making Jack Daniels toilet paper. You know, it just, you know, it makes it less valuable. So that's the way I would analyze it. But in any event, once you bring in the First Amendment, the Supreme Court gets involved. We'll look forward to that. I like your uh, cynical take on things. For, for a girl from a small town, it's, it's eye-opening. All right, so this is not so cynical.
0: Yeah. Uh, opinion piece in the New York Times, bring it back the oral exam written by Molly Worthen a professor at the University of North Carolina um and I think she's a, a history professor and uh she says you know obviously oral uh, exams yeah uh not so much yeah i i can't think of uh i don't ever see them anywhere i've never seen an oral exam um but and uh, she says there are there are fewer and fewer of them. And then back in the day, as in Socrates' day, um, you know, examinations were done orally. Yes. I mean, it was even, that's even before okay. uh, Socratic method, right. right? In the 1600s, all exams at Oxford and Cambridge were oral, that's and in Latin. That's before the duplicating
1: machine, right? Yes. Okay.
0: So um, eventually, you know, as as books, as, as written, as writing becomes easier, yeah. uh, that dissipates. Although in 1838, uh, Thomas Arnold, head of the rugby school, professor of history at uh, Oxford, writes that um, students examined orally have been thus tried more completely than could be by printed papers. For a man's answers suggest continually further questions. You can probe his weak points, you can and where you find him strong, you can give him an opportunity to do himself justice bringing him out and that and that's I think really true. It's not so much the idea that you know kind of cartoonish idea of a professor mm-hmm. um, confronting you and grinding you into the ground and right. you know making mismeat of you uh, orally. Um, but uh, they say time goes on, written exams carry an aura of rigor, objectivity, and modernity. Um, And plus they're uh, maybe easier to deal with on a large scale as as you're teaching bigger and bigger classes and you have to grade zillions of papers. Um, But uh, Professor Worthen contends that uh, students get much more out of an oral exam. Uh, If you it can be one-on-one and, you know, for so many reasons. And one of them is it gives you a chance to engage the student. And as, you know, Arnold was saying in 1838, you can see where they're weak, but you can also see where they're strong and get them to discuss and put things together. Mm. And so I didn't have literally oral exams, but I gave a quiz every week mm. uh, that, um we corrected in class, mm. and in the process of doing that those corrections, I would call on people to give the answer or I'd let people give the answer and and engage them and you know engage people throughout the audience and that was that was the best sort of in class discussion we would have mm. often because. As we've discussed before, students are not really doing the reading, students are not really prepared for class, but students do prepare for a quiz, and so they're ready to have some information. Oh, well, they
1: also would prepare to be, if they know they're going to be early talents in class, they have to be prepared for that.
0: Right. But this way, if it's a, if it's an actual exam and it's one-on-one, yeah, they don't have the added uh, intimidation of speaking in front of their peers right. and being judged, That's et cetera. Right. That's right. So it can be an excellent experience. I think it. It takes a skilled teacher, a skilled professor uh, to pull it off. And maybe that's part of the problem that you don't have. What, you know, it's not without risk. Uh, last spring, a British court ordered the University of Bristol to pay damages for the family of a young woman, an undergraduate with severe anxiety, who took her own life uh, I, I before an exam. That,
1: that doesn't uh, make any sense. Well, I mean, On uh many levels that doesn't make any sense. But but but, but let me go back. to First of all, I I think it's a great teaching tool, but is it a, is it practical as like, a grading tool? Could you grade people like that? could you well, say, uh,
0: she has examples of people who use it who say um, yes, I you know, I have a much better sense of the students grasp of the material. I understand.
1: I got down a grade and then you know go back and. But, but could you take the? Have, could you work it out time wise? Could you actually do it? Could you do it with a class of twenty people? You could have twenty oral exams. It's kind of hard well, to do. Well, think
0: of how long it takes you to grade twenty yeah. written exams. Yeah. Okay. So their contention is yes, it's quite doable. Okay. okay, and the the other benefit is plagiarism.
1: Well, that's true. I knew you would jump on that.
0: Uh, because that drives plagiarism. me nuts. Yeah. You know. Plagiarism. Um, And, uh, you know, but again, I think it takes a a skilled examiner, actually. And that may be the biggest drawback.
1: Oh, no, I think it's the time. Look, the only reason I I couldn't do it in my course because I'm teaching them how to handle lawsuits. And the truth is that more and more, almost entirely, handling lawsuits and handling disputes uh, means a fair bit of written presentations. You have to do the written presentations. Right. Um, uh, but we do have a component which uh, is oral because they have to do an oral presentation. And we do have an excellent class discussion in which the kids themselves the kids, the students who are in their twenties and thirties are quizzing the people who gave the presentation. And that's a very
0: If you can get that going. Well, you but can. in my mind presentations
1: um, our presentations are not the
0: same as examinations. No. I, I've sat through many lackluster presentations, yeah. and from people that I think, if I had sat down and talked to them, they could have uh, talked to me in a much more knowledgeable and interesting way right. than they managed to do as a presentation. But uh, you know, it's the the professor who uh, writes the article. Uh, Molly Worthen also brings up that for many people, it's a great stepping stone, a great exposure to public speaking, Yeah, even though it's not super public, but it's, you
1: know, giving them a chance
0: to articulate and to synthesize, um, you know, helping them put together ideas, whether it's in chemistry or history or or, or whatever.
1: did, Did you get anything out of the letters? People really most
0: of the letters were saying, yeah, it was, you know, it was the most the terrifying experience of my life and the best experience of yeah, my life, okay. you know, that I, I go on to be in this work and it was really the oral exam that I had in such and such that, you know, helped me prepare to be able to do it." Well,
1: that. you know, so, one senior lawyer told me at one point, which is, if you can't explain it, you don't understand it. Right, right. Uh, which is,
0: yeah. And, and you see that a lot. You, you have people who write a paper or answer a question online, and it's cut and paste. Yeah. You, know? They, you know, clearly they have no understanding. But if you had to talk to them about it, yeah. um, you know, and there are different ways to do it. One uh, professor was saying, "I give the students thirty-two questions, mm-hmm. and then they come in. I choose one of the questions, and they, have and they answer. And they choose one question and give me the answer." Mm-hmm. And answer meaning, you know, well, that's presentation, discussion. Whatever. Um, so there, there are we'll ways now, to do I, it. Very they they, in many other
1: countries, they still do it quite a bit. Right. Uh, just
0: not here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, look, I'm,
1: it would be great if you could make it work. Um, it, solves, it would solve a lot of problems. Um, so there's one obituary I was going to comment on, Julie uh, Campbell, who is described here in the Times as the brains behind The Sports Illustrated issue devoted to bodies dies at 96. The Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue was the brainchild of this woman, Julie Campbell. They used to do a uh, swimsuit issue for those who. Oh, because they they haven't done it for a few. I guess they still do it, but the magazine doesn't much exist in print. Any event, they used to years ago. They would have some uh, some swimming activities and make it one uh, issue a year, and then it became this. It became a swimsuit issue with the um, they had models wearing skimpy bathing suits. Well, there's
0: a time of year when there's no
1: sports they, going on. Exactly.
0: That's you originally explained to me. And that's what this article is. So so in, in
1: February. Right. And and especially then. So to it's fill
0: so, that gap.
1: Yeah, Post-Super Bowl. They baseball pictures of women in the skimpy bathing suits or no bathing suits. Right. But, they, but well, the they, bathing suits would be nearby. And uh, <laughs> they would... Uh, and she was it wasn't some lecherous guy spearheading this. it was this woman, Julie Campbell. and she defended it all the time, saying, "Look, you know it's tasteful it's it's not what you think it is it's uh... and of course they do talk about the fact that uh, uh here's middle middle America blue a gasket they would get all these letters from people who were getting sports Illustrated and giving them to their twelve giving the twelve year old son or something and it would be this year would come in and then people would write in." And it, with moral indignation, say I'm canceling my subscription to Sports Illustrated. They would get a certain percentage of letters like that. Every, every year, there was still more shock and, and surprise. Yeah, shock and surprise. I can't believe it. And, and they would publish the letters because the Sports Illustrated yeah. thought it was great. Um, uh, so it was a little bit controversial. Uh, they uh, they talked to the models in the obituary, and you know, they said they were always treated very well, and uh, it was a class operation. I understand now in retrospect that some people thought that people, women, would be objectified. I guess there's something to that, but you know, all modeling is like that anyway. It, the one thing you get out of the article is, and, and it's what the models say, and it's what other people say too the big departure and the big boots for these models was that they used their names. They said prior to that, it was very unusual for a model, in some kind of for a name to appear in any way. And for whatever reason, what Julie Campbell did would always prominently feature the name of the models. And according to this article, that was the advent of the supermodel. Suddenly they had a profile the brand and a certain uh, publicity. Uh, so a lot of them say they owe their careers and the whole idea of a supermodel to this woman, Julie Campbell. They put the names in uh, for whatever reason. So there you go. And, and, and you know that was a big deal for a while, right? Museum update. Okay. <laughs> ding ding ding. Go ahead. Go ahead. What's going on in museums, honey? Uh, well, stuff. Yeah.
0: Actually, um, first one I first exhibition I want to mention today is uh, at the Bard Graduate Center. Yeah, on West Eighty Sixth Street in New York City, yeah. and it's called Threads of Power, Lace from the Textile Museum, Saint Gallen. So the Bard Graduate Center actually uh, um, has some great little exhibitions. They bring them in. You know, they originate other places. Yeah, uh, I went to a great little uh, Christmas card, the history of Christmas cards, exhibition there a couple of years ago, um, and uh, and. Uh, Other shows, uh, too numerous to mention. So when they have something good, it's worth going to. It's a tiny little place. um, So it's not a huge exhibition, but this is about the history of lace. Now, you may not be too interested in lace. No. Okay. But uh, there are people out there who are. yeah. And uh, the whole, you know, how lace is made and how it's used. And they have examples of um, going way back, but they have sort of uh, more contemporary examples of various Ways lace is used. They have paintings. Uh, they have an example of uh, the, um, you know, in those Dutch master paintings with the big lace ruff mm-hmm. you see in the, right. in Halls uh, and Rubens, portraits, etc. Um, that crazy. Uh, sort of wagon wheel cartwheel thing mm-hmm. that uh, people would wear right. and you know in, in many ways it was practical because something it would be separate from the rest of your outfit mm-hmm. okay so you could take it off and wash it and starch it mm-hmm. and put it on again and uh you know it, it both frames your face and keeps the rest of your clothes clean yeah uh, you know even uh you know, lots of people wore this the interest the, the interest of those callers themselves, the history of those colors themselves is kind of interesting because they're all very fashionable in the time of uh, Elizabeth I. This you is know. Like
1: Shakespeare would wear wear something
0: like that. Well Shakespeare did probably wore lacy things like that too. I don't know if he wore did he wear the actual ruff? I don't know. I'm not an expert yeah, on right, go ahead. Uh, I, I images of Shakespeare. It. You know, and then it gets more popular later in Europe, after it's out of fashion, in the you know more of a sixteenth, seventeenth century thing. In the rest of Europe, when it's out of fa- uh, fashion in uh, England, which tickled me because I, I really think of England as being in the forefront of fashion. But anyway, it's a an interesting little uh, exhibition of lace at uh, the Bard. But here's the, here's the funny thing about the article. Yeah. Okay. So the article, the review of the exhibition, is by Rober- Roberta Smith,
1: mm-hmm.
0: who's prominent. And at the end, packed on is, this exhibition invites you to contemplate the beauty and ingeniousness of lace and the extreme skill in creating it, but also the undervaluing of labor and the superfluous use of surplus income that seems essential to the rise and fall of any civilization.
1: Okay, we want to unpack that. Meaning
0: what? In mean, anyway, it's just, it's a whole discussion of the history of lace and so on and so forth. And at the end, she says, um, just tax on this little political statement yeah. about how it, uh, really reflects, uh, the, uh, poverty, the, the low wages, uh, the, but, but being taken I, I, advantage I of the lace makers and, uh, you know, uh, and also, it's just a way of expressing as status. It's a completely frivolous thing to wear. It's just a way for rich people to spend their money and oppress the
1: yeah. All right, well, workers. that's that's good for the economy. It's not necessarily oppressive. I mean, you have these people putting money in the economy by hiring people to make laces. Uh, so that's, that's a positive. That, not uh, the way that uh, person. Is, yeah.
0: it. Yes, I understand,
1: but uh, so
0: right. I'm not even sure. You know. I'm not even sure if she really feels that way, yeah. the reviewer, yeah. or if that's just like the um the sort of mantra of the New York Times at this point. I don't
1: know I can't talk but, yeah I'm out of my depth, yeah, I did I confirm know, though that uh, Shakespeare did wear a rough collar, okay, yes, All right he, he's part of this. you know
0: also you might want to go I'm going to uh I have plans
1: mm-hmm.
0: to go to um Washington Yes, in a couple of weeks, in a couple of weeks. yeah and uh, i love to go to the national gallery at christmas time mm-hmm. it has restrained but exquisite holiday decorations mm-hmm. and really puts me in the holiday mood they usually have uh, some exhibitions worth seeing i always have a good time this year they have an exhibition of the work of Vittore carpaccio yeah okay and uh Let me see. Uh, Venetian perfection gets a second chance is uh, the title of this review. And so it's all about uh, a um, painter who was, you know, popular in the 15th century, 15th century. Yeah. 15th, 16th century, turn of the 15th, 16th century. And, uh, you know, and, and the article starts out by saying Henry James writes about how you know, in the 19th century, how popular he was. You know that the everywhere you went, people were talking about Carpaccio. And who knows about Carpaccio now? I mean, I've I've seen his paintings to some extent, but I don't know very much at all about him. And it's a very sort of flat, um, gothic, uh, detailed style. Uh, really uh, delights. In creating, you know, using uh, linear perspective to create believable spaces, et cetera, but uh, completely um, different sensibility, more medieval, I would say, than uh, the works we're more familiar with, of uh, the Renaissance, you know, uh, art, et cetera, and uh, certainly um, not at all like uh, Titian, Tintoretto, et cetera. And anyway, it's but uh, they are largely paintings that tell a story, mm. um, and that makes them uh, quite uh, interesting as well. So uh, that would be fun to see. Speaking of Tinturico, uh and uh, Carpaccio, and by the way, Carpaccio—you've heard of beef carpaccio, right?
1: Yeah.
0: Um, raw beef served, uh, you know, shaved very thin. That was named after him, uh, the chef at Harry's Bar. Mm-hmm. uh there was an exhibition and uh, apparently the reds in Carpaccio's paintings mm-hmm. inspired him to when he was creating this dish to uh, commemorate carpaccio mm-hmm. with that name of the uh, you know uh raw roasted beef anyway uh there's a um, the, on the front of this exhibition uh, article the review is a picture of uh, a painting by Carpaccio St George killing a dragon -hmm. You know Saint George and the Dragon. There's also a wonderful, you know, and he's spearing that dragon right down his throat. Um, And uh, there's a wonderful Tintoretto of Saint George and the Dragon. And in that case, the woman he's saving is actually seated on the dragon, possibly even has the dragon under control at this point. And Saint George is kind of in the background with his his hands raised. Well, what do I do? now okay yeah. it's kind of it's a, it, it's a an interesting amusing sort of sophisticated take on that subject matter not that many years later after yeah. this all right moving right along um, another uh, exhibition at the grolier club uh, in uh, new york city on east 60th street and that is let me see building the book from the ancient world to the present day. Yeah. And it's actually put on by the Rare Book School, mm-hmm. which turns out to be an a nonprofit institution based out of based on the campus of uh University of Virginia, mm-hmm. and it studies the history of books and printing books. Mm-hmm. And it uh, they they give 5-day non-credit courses to um rare book people
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it's really the center of like bibliographical um scholarship research information education uh, in the united states they, they give courses on how paper is made you know the way you know you have wood pulp or mm-hmm. rags you know pushed together and uh made into paper i don't even know how that happens really but it would be interesting to really know um, the history of that paper making, because you know, remember before paper there was papyrus. Yeah. And uh, so paper was a huge innovation. I feel like maybe the, uh, I know it became popular in China early on, but uh, I could use the course, right? There's also, there are courses how to differentiate medieval printing you know, from medieval manuscript Mm -hmm. uh, to be able to look. And and there are great little stories in this article uh, telling about how, you know, these arcane, you know, fascinating little details of how books are made and tell you so much about the books themselves and help identify them and et cetera and so forth. To me, it seems fascinating. This is not the time in life when I'm going to go back and get a degree in rare book uh yeah, no bad. I but I you know um that fascinates me.
1: Okay.
0: I think it is interesting. So go to Grolier Club. They have satellite places. You know, you yeah. don't have to you don't have to go to University of Virginia to take their courses. And mm-hmm. Grolier Club is one of their sort of uh satellite locations, but uh um
1: rare book school. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I do. All right, so, finally, we're going to wrap this up. The um, There's an article called A DNA Divide Among Ashkenazi Jews Disappeared. i gotta cover this in, like, 90 seconds, because I don't understand it. Uh, the the Times doesn't help me understand it. Uh, I'm an Ashkenazi Jew.
0: You're 100%. Ashkenazi. To repeat the story that I gave you the Ancestry whatever. Yeah. Um, or what was it? What's, it? what's it called? I don't know. 23 and whatever. For 23 and... Uh, um, for Christmas one year, or you gave it to me, and I said, well, I'd be more interested no. in your, um,
1: your... I didn't give it to you. You gave it to me, and uh, we looked it up, and uh, we went through it, and, and it was the shortest report of all time, and they said, 100% Ashkenazi Jew.
0: And that was it. That was it. No, nothing
1: about <laughs> what country or Well, well it, so here's the thing. It, 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 100%. it used to be more to say. Here's so disappointing. The weird part is that, they said, um, uh, there used to be a more variety in terms of uh, DNA of Ashkenazi Jews. Um, it, it doesn't make any sense because usually you would think as time goes on, uh, DNA becomes more complex. With various generations, there's some mixing of different, uh, ethnicities. Uh, not so with Ashkenazi Jews. What you had was you were these different threads of, uh, Ashkenazi Jews. And um, somehow, because of persecution as much as anything else, uh, they ended up um, sort of, uh, how shall I say, uh, sort of converging on this German city called Erfurt. Uh, and the reason was that while there were, there were pogroms and Jews were being killed all over the place, um, and even in Erfurt, somehow in Erfurt they figured out in 1340. Well, 1349 was there was a massacre of Jews, Uh, but following that, the the, the town of Erfurt figured out that they needed Jews. That they needed Jews because they needed them uh, to be merchants, they needed them uh, to generate tax revenue, they needed them to have businesses, and they invited Jews there. The Askenazi Jews therefore converged under Erfurt. So for the 700, and they exhumed all these bodies, for the 700 years before this happened, you would have a lot of variation in the DNA of Ashkenazi Jews because they were from all over. Following uh, this event, uh, following this convergence, uh, the DNA of Ashkenazi Jews became fairly singular because they were all coming from one place. And as a result, this is what the article says, two Jews walking the cobblestone streets of 14th century Germany were more genetically distinct on average than any two Ashkenazi Jews alive today. Despite the rapid growth of the Ashkenazi Jewish population during the last 700 years, the population has become more homogeneous. You have, like my DNA, 100% Ashkenazi Jewish. There's nothing else else to talk about. Uh, And, uh, you know, uh, people- uh,
0: So that sort of answers uh, our question, right? I mean, those days are over, baby. Yeah. Because now you know you have children
1: who are not hundred percent. That's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, but it is weird that they make a point of saying that my own DNA sequences are extremely similar to any other Ashkenazi Jew that you're likely to run into with a similar background to mine.
0: So is that helpful in any way or not?
1: They don't say. I don't know if it's helpful. It's not helpful. And the rest of us are just a jumble. That's really weird. All yeah, right. it is, it's just weird. Okay. Uh, and I'm sure if I understood it better, it's more than weird, but the article doesn't really educate me on it. All right, so that's all we have. Uh, a lot going on. Uh, if we head toward the Christmas season, 17 shopping days left or something like that. Maybe it is. Yeah, this. I'm
0: getting ready to celebrate Hanukkah.
1: Why am I saying seven? In California. Maybe. I,
0: I, I, I 14, can't do the 12, 11, yeah, you're, you're, 10. You're the math elite.
1: Well, I don't shop and I don't celebrate And it depends dollars. how many
0: days you celebrate. Yeah, that's all true. 12. I am the math elite.
1: <laughs> uh that's another Askenazi Jew thing. I'll see that's you good. next week. with Tams <laughs> and Dan read the paper. This is Dan Abbey off. James again. And Granger. Yes. See you.
0: <laughs> Bye.